Hello, my friends. I'm curious to know how many of you have a leadership pipeline. We know that great leaders grow companies because we talk to them here on the show every day. But what are you doing to create great leaders within yours? If you're a CTO, it is 100% your responsibility to grow and improve your people beyond just their coding abilities. We've built a tool that improves your people in their craft and in leadership. Visit leaderbits.io to learn more. Today we are talking to Bryson Kohler, the CTO at Equifax, and we discuss how you can become more valuable professionally, the unique advantage of inquisitive engineers, and the culture of security being built in versus bolted on. All of this right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. topic like from a higher perspective about like you know i come from SaaS software business world where we can ship software kind of loosey-goosey right like and if there's a we get some error reports some notifications and we go write a patch and deploy but when i started talking to people like from nasa and they were building satellites and you get like a one shot to put the satellite sure. up. and and so i started putting it out there and asking people if you come across resources um, like books or things of that nature for people that worked in those, not necessarily just high availability environments, but like high reliability testing for the things that have like really high stakes, I get requests from that quite a bit. People saying, oh, is there development books? Are there engineers writing about developing these types of applications and the heuristics or the methodologies they use? And I haven't come across a whole lot. So I'm putting feelers out there. No, it's um, I, uh, medical device manufacturers, um, you know, have, have always been, uh, you know, a place where I always have looked at, you know, teams uh, and partners that work in that type of environment because, you know, you start thinking about, um, you know, a heart monitor, um, just a simple thing. You know, there's no period of time where a Java garbage collection process is, is okay, um, right? There's no window where like this is okay. So um, brings a whole different level of testing that your average kind of SaaS uh, team just doesn't think about. Um, but, you know, I think, look, if you think about the consumer experience, if you think about the expectations that we have on, on devices um, in our own lives, like the bar continues to, to, to get raised. And so, you know, the, the, the level of testing that, you know, a heart monitor probably went through 10 years ago is probably the level of testing that your average mobile application developer is going through in this day and age around battery life, you know, network chattiness and, you know, these things that impact stuff behind the scenes, uh, you know, the bar just continues to rise, which, um, which is good. Um, but uh, certainly we're always having to look and learn. And that's the best part about being in technology is that you never stop learning. Um, and with the bar constantly being pushed forward, uh, you know, we're always having to uh, learn new ways of working, learn new tools, uh, meet new people, uh, try to find ways and tricks uh, and, and processes and ways of working that have worked for them. Uh, so it's just a, it's a fascinating and fun time. Yeah, we share, we collaborate, we get a little edge, we improve, then we turn around and share and it starts the cycle all over. But I am, I mean, I am really excited to ask you about 
um, your first experience with technology, like growing up, like what was your first thing that you, like when did you fall in love with technology? So I fell in love with technology in late, very late 1982, um, when my dad, who was uh, a CFO at the time um, at a Fortune 100 company, he, he somehow had gotten his hands on a pre-production Apple IIe. Um, and I think they were trying to figure out whether or not it made any sense to bring that into their workplace for uh, spreadsheets or doing, you know, financial stuff. And, and he brought it home, uh, you know, for the weekend. And I don't think I slept that whole weekend. Um, and I just, I'll, I'll never forget, you know, from that moment, I just have been a geek. Um, I just have, you know, I taught myself, you know, obviously the, the hardware side of it, the operating side of it, how to code, um, and just, you know, whether it was, you know, an Apple IIe or a, a VIC-20 or an Amiga or, you know, all the way through, you know, my kind of formative years of growing up, uh, I was fortunate enough. I ran my own BBS um, nice. and, uh, you know, somehow convinced my, my parents to, um, put four phone lines into the house so I could run four simultaneous concurrent users, um, which was awesome. Um, and so, uh, you know, running a BBS at a young age was, you know, it was kind of also the combination of probably some entrepreneurialism. Um, because I remember I got an ad from the local computer store, uh, that would come up on the welcome script. Um, uh, you know, I think, you know, they probably gave me a packet of floppy disks as my payment, but, um, <laughs> but, but nonetheless, it was like my first deal. Um, and so I've just been a geek since I was a, a little kid and I just, I just love the physics behind it. I think probably more than anything, understanding really how, um, the electrons are flowing through the system and yeah, you know, how th that, that's what really excites me. And, um, you know, so I, I, I just have enjoyed the, the process of, of watching it grow. And now, you know, as software eats the world, um, you know, you know, figuring out how we continue to make software work better so that the electrons continue to become more efficient. That's amazing. So one day I'm sitting around and I'm like, um, looking at the pixels on the screen of, I like, I was writing code for like 10, 12 years at the time. And I was right. like, what happens if the power goes out? Like I would not know as a human how to get the power back on because I don't even understand what it is. And it's like I sit here staring at the screen my whole life. And I don't understand how the electron gets here. And then I start thinking and I'm like, well, they say energy is not created or destroyed. And then I'm like, so then what does a power station do? How does it manufacture energy? <laughs> like this doesn't make sense, <laughs> right? And so like these issues started arising in my, in my head. Um, and so I started doing research. I found MIT and all their course information about introduction to electronics and ultimately i found out how it gets generated down at the power station steps down through all our transformers ultimately does a series of additional step downs inside the actual chips and uh, like transistors and that's all, awesome and, yeah and so i was like now i know how an electron flows from the power station down nice. through into my house and emits a, a a photon essentially out of the screen right and yeah so that was really well, exciting. Well, power stations aren't really generating power. They're just converting right. power and energy <laughs> yep. from one form to another. And so, you know, and I think, you know, what's so fascinating about your comment around, hey, I just didn't know how that came out of the wall. Um, 
you know, what I think is so great about where we are with technology today, if you think about like 120 volts at 60 hertz, which is the, the power, you know, cycle here in the United States, it's different around the world, but within a country, you can pretty much guarantee that every wall socket in the U.S. is 120 volts at 60 hertz. You can plug in and it just works. And if we think about technology going from infrastructure as a service and, you know, platforms as a service, software as a service, like we're, we're making more and more of, of, of infrastructure as a simple example, work like power. You know, how does that VM get spun up? Well, I don't know. It just got spun up. And then if you were to go and do the same research you did on power, but if you did that on, say, cloud computing, um, it's almost the same level of fascination around what all goes behind the scenes to make all of that work. Um, I, I guess that's probably why I, you know, have been a geek and I'm still a geek at heart is that I just get enthralled with understanding how things work. Yes, yeah, that curiosity spark when your brain finds the conflict. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Now, have you written an article on that? Power um, cloud computing infrastructure? No, I mean, I, I, uh, in some of, sometimes when I'm out speaking on the, you know, doing, you know, doing, you know, some speaking, I, I, I do a little riff on that and do a little riff on, you know, innovation and pushing the envelope and, um, you know, how we need to continue to have that spark of curiosity, um, as engineers and as software developers or, or hardware engineers, you know, um, but also as we were talking earlier about, you know, being a QA engineer, half of being a great, you know, uh, test engineer is the curiosity. Um, don't just follow the script. I mean, follow the script, but also, you know, think about other paths that may not have been well-defined. Um, being curious is, is the best part of being an engineer. Oh, and that balance about being professional is being able to follow the script, but not letting it box you in. Like exactly. get what, get what needs to be done, done, but don't but let do that, more. Like, yeah, do more, <laughs> do more. Because it feels good. It's like our bodies are programmed for like, I don't know about you, but after I work hard, I feel good. Absolutely. It's that, that, and that is a great way to kind of end the day with a feeling of great accomplishment. Yeah. By the way, when you were talking about, um, you hooked up four users with your, uh, 56k cards. <laughs> they so, were 56k. They were, no. they were, we started off at 600 then we went to, uh, <laughs> four, I got, I got to 1400 and then, I, I think by the time I shut it down, I was, I had four fourteen four k, uh, okay. you know, modem. So, but in, yeah, anyway. Well, so for me, 56 K was like the intro, right. And uh, I'm 30. Lucky dog. <laughs> Lucky dog. <laughs> but I remember being about, I don't know, eight years old and we had these 56 Ks and my dad comes home from work and we get a pizza and we install um, he's like, you want to have some fun? I'm like, yeah, I want to have some fun. So we installed two 56 Ks and we uploaded and downloaded at the same time. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Duplexing your modems together. That is stroke of genius. Yep. That's yep. great. Yep. It was, a. <laughs> it was quite the night. It was like, <laughs> we, were, we were just like partying, being nerds. And, uh, that's like one of my favorite. And then, oh, I can't forget the day that they got T1 at the office. That wow! Was, that those were insane days. I, between ISDN and then T1s, and you know, now I've got you know a gigabit fiber line running to my house, and <laughs> my kids, my kids just you know do not at all understand that uh, 
getting a, a thousand down and a thousand up is just not normal. <laughs> unless you, unless you were talking about bits, uh, of, 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 inf- they just don't get it. They don't get it. But they'll still be like in 10 years talking or having a conversation about how slow it was. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Dad, it's not working. Dad, why is this taking so long? Well, dad, why is this congested? So oh. anyway, Here, here's a curious question and we can remove it from the interview if you don't, if we don't like it, but I'm just, my brain sparked curiosity um, because of your high level of um, executiveness, I guess we'll say, because you're at a, pu- you're at a publicly traded company that, that the world knows, right? Yeah. Does that have any sort of impact on your family security? Like with, with the internet and usage? You know, I, I, um, I think that's a great question. Honestly, no. I mean, I, um, I run, you know, we're, we're constantly, you know, making sure we're secure. Um, my kids use two-factor authentication, you know, even on their own little personal account. Um, Cause I think it's important that we all take security very seriously. Um, and whether you're a you know, public figure, whether you're not, um, you know, I think if hackers are scanning and looking for uh, an unpatched, you know, Asus router somewhere, uh, they're just scanning. Um, they're going to find it. And then they just, you know, we're going to see what happens. So could it, could, could somebody be more targeted? Sure. Um, but I'm not quite sure that there's anything more that the, uh, a, a more targeted person should do than a non-targeted person. Um, and we always have to keep pushing the envelope, you know, as we move past two factor and all other things, but, um, you know, thinking about having encryption turned on, think about having the right password protection, understanding. It's good for your kids to understand that because that's the world they grow up in. Um, and, uh, you know, it, what was great was a couple of my kids already had done really good practices before I even had started to talk to them about it years ago. Oh, nice. So that was actually, you know, as a, as a dad, that was rewarding. It was like, yeah, right. you know, way to go, son. Um, so, um, so it's good. And then he locks you out of his account because he's got 2FA on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, it does make it more difficult as a parent to, uh, you know, snoop on your kids. But, um, uh, you know, what do you do? That's awesome because, you know, for me, this is a, a thing that I will face eventually when they start getting online because they're so young. And it's like, you have to sit down and talk with your kids about two-factor authentication. Oh, absolutely. And, um, you know, I think at first, you know, if I look at my sample size of five, um, a few just didn't understand why this was important and why it mattered. And, um, you know, but, but as they watch even in social media, you know, things happen. Um, you know, rumors are out there. People's photos get released. Stuff occurs to folks that, kind of are in their social circles, um, all of a sudden it all clicks for them, right? So maybe it's not their bank account, um, but, uh, you know, nobody wants to see their Instagram chat feed, uh, you know, publicly posted either. So, uh, you know, to them, that's probably worth more clearly than their bank account is. Um, But, you know, I think it's really good to see uh, security now being at the forefront of dinner table conversations and boardroom conversations. I, I knew we were going to be best friends the moment you referred to your collection of kids as a sample size. 
Hey, I told you I'm a self-proclaimed geek. I can't. Dude, I love it. I love it. (laughs) So, so yeah, I'm very happy security is becoming a larger part of the conversation. Now, I'm curious when with companies of your size, how do you handle security? Do you just hire the brightest people internally? Do you partner with companies like Symantec? Like, how how do you approach security, like talent, getting security talent? So. I would say first here at Equifax, we, we, we approach security as job one. Um, and the pivot that we're going through with our technology transformation is making sure that security, you know, as I always say, is built in, not bolted on. Um, and, you know, I think for many companies that have a legacy environment that was built uh, many moons ago, they've been going through a period of time of bolting security on. Um, adding agents or adding additional firewalls or adding more network segments or, you know, whatever, right? And so, and that bolting on is a certain type of security skill set. Um, and that's a certain type of certification. It's a certain type of skill set. But, but here at Equifax, the transformation we're going through is a rebuild into a cloud native world where security is baked in where we're thinking about it at a much deeper, lower level engineering perspective. And now that takes a totally different security mindset. And so we have been going through a a pretty rapid reskill within our security team. Um, And I think we have flipped from 30% of our security team being engineers, uh, say a year ago, to today 70% um, of our security team are engineers. Um, and we've inverted the team to be a much more engineering-focused team because we know that when we build the capabilities and we build what we're um, designing and how we're going to deploy it and how we manage data and we think about data governance, that security has to be a part of the code. It has to be a part of the architecture. And it's not something where in today's world you can just bolt something on at the end and think you're going to be okay. Um, so when you think about getting talent, uh, in today's world, you know, I I think going back to the conversation, inquisitive engineers are really good. Um, and if you think about building out, say, a red team in security to go work at doing some sort of, you know, white knight hacking type activities, you know, you want people who are inquisitive. You want people who are, um, you know, if you understand how the electrons are flowing, it makes it easier for you to protect them. It makes it easier for you to go find ways to break them. Um, and those are all good characteristics. And so it's a different skill set when you're hiring security engineers for building security in at the ground level versus bolting agents on at the end of the day. I almost had a, an entry into security for a while in between some of my projects there because I was so interested in my question I would ask myself was how lazy was this developer? <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, and I, I actually have a joke about that. I, I say I, I love lazy engineers. Um, and so I'm always looking to hire lazy engineers because those engineers want to automate. Those engineers want to find ways to not have to go perform those, you know, duplicative tasks. Now, clearly, in your example, there could be a downside of that. <laughs> but, but my my tongue in cheek, you know, because I actually think automation is the key to the best security, right? 
getting into a highly repeatable way of working, deploying software, managing and running your systems, when that's automated and you remove the human element, the more I can remove the human element, the more secure I believe that those systems would be. And so, um, you know, there's, there's certainly a pro and a con, but, you know, I think whether you're a security engineer or a test engineer, you, we probably all have those moments where you're like, what in the world was Bryson thinking? Like this, <laughs> what was he thinking? Um, and uh, those are always fun moments. No, I, I get what you mean though by lazy engineers. I'll say undisciplined engineers, <laughs> right? The people who, who aren't checking the right boxes. But I like your ability, the concept of using automation because for those repeatable, consistent events, automation is like where it's at. Well, and it's, it's why I actually think the cloud is more secure than anything anybody can do on-prem. Um, and that's such a shift from where I think the industry mindset has been for a period of time. Um, but, you know, to me, the cloud is light years ahead of what people can achieve in an on-prem environment. Um, and I would say there's, a, there's many reasons why I think that's true. You know, things like an evergreen environment, you, you know, as you're constantly able to move to the most current version of software, current version of hardware, current version of security tools, like that promotes a good security posture. Um, you know, if you're in an on-prem environment and you buy something and now you've got to, you know, you, and you capitalize it and you write it off over a, you know, say five-year period, well, that tool was out of date six months after you bought it, but yet it's still on the books and so you're still running it. In the cloud, you can just keep moving. And that's, that's good. But I would say one of the most critical aspects of cloud security is automation, treating infrastructure as code. Um, you know, every time I do a deploy, I'm pulling my OS image. I'm including the latest libraries. I'm always patched that the entire build process is always clean and it's always done every time. It's not layer on layer on layer on layer of 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 systems that you can't even backtrack how you got to where you you know were. The cloud just promotes really good hygiene. Yeah, it reminds me of like I don't know. While you're talking, the imagery popping into my head is from a project I worked on for high frequency trading uh, in the stock okay. market. The time yeah. arbitrage becomes so small to exploit the flaw now because of how fast you can move, right? And so that window closes. Totally agree. I mean, and if you think, I mean, you're dealing with, you know, microseconds at that point. Um, and that makes it very difficult. I think the same thing's probably true with identity, right? If we think about, um, you know, how do we continue to raise the bar on our own personal identity uh, and making sure that the attributes about us are protected and that we continue as a society to raise the bar on identity protection. I think there's an element to identity protection that we're working on here at Equifax that is tied to, you know, making sure that the data elements that can be used to identify a person um, are transient enough that, you know, they become meaningless um, and they expire so quickly that they're not useful. Um, you know, um, if, and, and we've got to continue, you know, to, to move in that direction, right? You know, if you live in the same state, you've had the same driver's license number since, you know, you got your driver's license at 16. Um, and so, you know, if somebody has your driver's license number, it's the same one, it never changes. Um, so, you know, I think 
There's millions of examples of that. But as a society, we have to start thinking about how we evolve these forms of identification so that that time horizon that you were talking about from high-frequency trading gets, a, gets baked into other things that we're, we're trying to solve as a group. Now, as the United States, uh, we're, and you're a U.S. citizen, right? Like you're from the United I States? Am. Okay, I, I talk to people all over the world. Um, so as the United States, I've experienced other governments, and we are not as far as ahead as other governments are with their security and identification. How, how, do you do you know how that happens? Like, is that because like, is that something that we talk with the government? About? Like, who drives that? Do you know? You know, we're certainly not as progressive, um, and you know, I think there's there's um, many reasons. You know, from Bryson's perspective, um, you know why that is, and we'll see if that changes over time. I mean, I think fundamentally, you're talking about freedom, um, and you are talking about you know. The, the concept of a, a more rigorous national identification system, you know, and, and there's, there's pros and cons when you think about the constitutionality of individual freedom and not having the big brother, you know, tracking you and all of these things. And so, you know, the risk um, in being too progressive, I totally understand that argument. I understand that point of view that that could be a slippery slope um, and it could be used in ways that are not helpful. Um, and so as a, as a society, I think we've been, um, you know, probably the most, uh, deliberate. And in this case, that probably means slow, um, to, you know, transition to a more digital way of thinking about identity. But I, I would even say, if you look at the U S whose job is it to do identity, like which, which federal, which branch, that's, why, that's why I'm asking, like who, like whose job is it? It's not today. It's not, you know, if you go ask the social security administration, they'll say, it's not our job. Our job is to make sure that you were born where you said you were born and give you an identification number to track where you were born. They never intended for social security number to be an identifying factor of, of a person. Right. Um, that wasn't why that was created. That's not their mandate. Um, And, and I think, you know, that's an insightful you know, uh, piece of information. So then you look at, well, well, whose job is it? Is it Homeland Security? Is it, right? And so I think it's been easier for that to be a local level decision with things like the Department of Motor Vehicles. You know, you could say maybe the State Department with passports as an identification mechanism. Um, but I'm not sure that, you know, the folks at the State Department are waking up every day trying to figure out how to, uh, you know, uh, to, that's not, they've got other problems to solve. And so, We've been hardening physical documents, making it harder to fake a passport, making it harder to fake your driver's license and creating all kinds of digital holographic things within the paper. Um, you know, whether or not those are, are um, uh, you know, hackable, I would, I would assume they are. Um, I haven't tried, but, um, we all went to high school. But, you know, I think back in the day, it was certainly easier to do that than it is today. But how do we apply the same level of rigor that we have done for a secure ID in a physical form uh, from a government agency to whose job is it to to do that in a digital world? I think that's a I think that's a question that as a society we are, um, you know, wrestling with. Yeah. And you know what? I don't I don't actually think it's the worst thing that we're not 
the first on everything. And yep. I'll tell you why. It's because I see some other companies and we were the first on a lot of things or some other countries and they will make improvements in their versions like are way better. And so I'm thinking, all right, let's let some other companies hash out this digital identity stuff. And then once they've had some For sure. trial and success with it and figured out the pain points and had the issues, then we can come in and create our version. But I think that's right. And like, you know, to me, the, the, the uh, thoughtfulness as a society that we've had around the civil liberties impact and the freedom and Big Brother and all of that, I think, look, that's, that's why we have a democracy that, uh, you know, that debate is supposed to occur. Um, and we're not supposed to just rush into something. Um, and so, you know, this one, I think, I think there is a thoughtful debate occurring. Um, I, I would suggest that, uh, you know, as I always tell my team, if you're going to have a meeting, uh, make sure you know who actually owns the decision in the meeting so that you can actually get to a decision and move forward. If you go to a meeting and you're not really sure who's in charge of making a decision, I, I'm not really sure. It sounds like we're just going to have a great conversation then. Um, and if you think about identity um, and you think about how does that get digitized, I think you have to start with who makes that decision. Ooh, I like it. That's some leadership stuff right there. <laughs> No, so yeah, I'm I'm excited because uh, when we when we do end up getting that, I think if we ask the right questions, we'll get really good results. We'll get better results. So, for example, um, as we're talking, we imagine, or at least I feel like the subtext is that we imagine that you can't have both. Like you can't have both your privacy and the omni security concept. And I think that there's a way that we we could. I yeah, think I agree. There's some, I don't know how it looks. <laughs> well, I think blockchain raises an interesting concept, right? If you think about a secure ledger that you can control or that, you know, that you had more visibility into the attributes that are being put and pulled from it, um, you know, how, how does that, how does that type of technology innovation um, change the way we were maybe thinking about being boxed in in the past? Right. So maybe you get to a place where, to your point, you can have both. Um, I think you have to continue to push until you invent a way that you do have both. Right. Um, yes. And 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 because identity is really it's my identity. It's not the government's identity. It's mine. Um, I should protect my identity. I should should understand my attributes about me um, and I should play a more active role in that. Um, and, and how do we leverage technology? Um, and the fact that we're all walking around with a small glass, you know, a supercomputer in our, in our pocket. So how cool. do we, how do we, how do we leverage that ecosystem to, to play a part in something truly transformative? Um, I think it's a very exciting time. And I know here at Equifax, we are incredibly eager to be a part of the improvement of, of that entire mission. I like you, Bryson. <laughs> I think you're pretty awesome. <laughs> well, we get, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> we get some uh, questions from the show, like people will write in and ask us. So I've got a couple questions about change management. Have you heard of this hot topic now? It seems to be popular in the HR Are we talking world. about people change management or technical change management? Right. And that was my first question, too. Uh, <laughs> Let's, we're talking right now, this question uh, comes about like reluctance, resistance to change. Like if you've got something that you want to push 
or something that you see happening, you see coming, you've got a, let's say your team happens to be resistant. Uh, what are your, what are your thoughts? Like, how do you, how do you deal with that? So, you know, when I think about the technology transformation that we're doing here at Equifax, the number one priority I have is our own cultural transformation as a company, right? That fixing culture, improving culture, helping people and their skill sets adapt and all of that. I have to do that well before I can actually ever achieve a technology transformation. So I spend a lot of time on this topic. Um, and, you know, I think um, the number one thing you have to, to realize in change management is that, you know, not everybody is eager for change. Um, and I always have to check myself because for me, I love change. I, I get bored in about four minutes. And so I'm always looking for um, something new, something different, a different way to think about something, a different perspective. Um, but not everybody's built like that. And so um, I think the first thing that we have to recognize is that, you know, changing people uh, is you got to first help them understand why. Well, why is this good for me? Why would I want to change? What was wrong and what has now become outdated in the way I was working in the past? Um, and, you know, what's in it for me as I go through this technology transformation um, or what's in it for me as I go through any sort of change, a change in process, a change in, you know, my job, a change in the, the building I work in, the change in my commute, whatever it is, like it is, it's, it's mostly dealing with a sense of insecurity tied to the unknown. Um, and, and I always find that really just trying to surface the natural elephants that exist in the unknown and get them all out on the table and just say, look, here are the things I know you're thinking about. Here are the things that I know that are on your mind. Here are the things that I believe that if I were you, I'd be worried about. So let me just put them out there and then let's talk about them. And then, you know, we can certainly talk about why we think the change we are going to go through is useful, because I think that's the second piece, right? So the first piece is that kind of uncertainty and insecurity of the unknown. The second piece is the disbelief that whatever I'm going to do is actually going to make a difference, right? If this is just, oh, and this too will pass, and I'll just keep doing it the old way, and we'll eventually just realize the old way was fine, I think you got to create and change a sense of belief in the mission as to if I really change this, it really will be better. It really will be different. We can accomplish an outcome that was different because I certainly see in a lot of cases in my career where there's a lot of folks that just, if I keep my head down, everybody, this will pass and I'll just be able to keep getting away with whatever I was doing in the, in the past. And I've found that getting people excited that that may be true, but here's why we don't want the past way of doing something to continue and why it's in all of our best interests to move forward. You know, do you really want to have a 2G phone? Isn't, isn't your 4G experience better than 2G? Um, and you know, 99% of people will say yes. There's going to be the one guy or gal that pulls out a flip phone and says, no, SMS is just fine. And you know what? Great. Good for you. That may just not be what we need here. Um, there's probably plenty of places where you'll fit in just fine, but it's not here. And, and you can't be as a leader bashful about that being a part of the change management process. That was like pure gold. 
I love it. When are you writing a book? <laughs> I, you know, I honestly, if I did a better job at note taking, I could probably do a really good movie script, but, um, you could. Uh, but, so here's what we'll do. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to, we have this book that we're putting together. Like, okay. Right, we haven't, we don't have the title solidified yet. Um, but the idea is that from all these conversations that I'm having with all these great technology leaders like yourself, uh, we pull like little tidbits of of their best insight and thoughts. And we're going to put it into this book and just put it out into the world and say, here, here you go world. Here's the best collective knowledge that we have. That's great. Happy to be a part of it and, and, and have totally enjoyed our conversation. I just love the fact that you, you totally get it. And the fact that you went and studied how the power plant works, you're, you you're to. a member of, you're, you're just awesome. And so like happy to get together anytime and chat about topics that are on your mind. Cause these are fun. And look, you only live once. So you got to love what you do. And, and I really encourage people, you know, my job is to help people become more employable. Um, I really mean that. And I really want people to love what they do and be curious and, and have these, have conversations and explore the world um, and explore what's going on. And, and you can't be a great CTO or a great CIO if you're not doing that in your own walk of life. Oh, it's such truth, right? Because you have to actually like care about the people <laughs> and what's best for them, even when it's not what's best for you. And when I see that in leaders, like I really enjoy those people. Oh, so true. So true. So I'm, I'm curious to know, as, as we begin to wrap up here, you went from, you know, the Weather Channel, IBM, Equifax, like everybody loves the sound of that, right? Be, but it's, through vision, discipline, and a lot of hard work in order for you to traverse that. And it takes a lifetime to have an awesome lifetime, right? Like it takes like a career to do something really cool. You can't just do it overnight. And so a lot of our audience is uh, 30-something, 40-something uh, technologists, whether they're team leads, first-time leaders, or, or VPs, or maybe CTOs as well. Uh, well, not maybe, definitely CTOs as well. But they're in that position. They're somewhere in that gradient of their of their career. And the biggest question I get is, how how do I level up? How do I get to that next level? How do I become more valuable? So I'm curious in your path how you did it, and then what you look for in people who are replicating that. So you know, to me, it's about constantly pushing yourself. Um, it's about not getting complacent or comfortable. Constantly pushing yourself outside of your comfort zone. Um, and you know, I have, uh, you know, I, I have, um, you know, by moving around and, and changing jobs, you want to be somewhere long enough where you've completed a mission. Um, I don't like leaving stuff undone. I like, you know, getting through, uh, a really bold agenda over a period of time. Um, and then, you know, finding that next agenda and finding, and, and, and as you move around from industry to industry, you learn a lot of different things. I also think, being on the, you know, the, the different sides of the proverbial table, you know, being on the, you know, vendor provider partner side, being on the consumption buyer side, you know, bouncing on, on those over your career at least once, I think is really healthy. Um, I think that's a really healthy way to like learn the perspective, whether you're in negotiations, whether you are thinking about product management or development, knowing both sides of that equation is really important. But it really comes down to purpose. You have to be passionate about what you're doing. 
You know, I love to travel and see the world. So I spent 10 years at Intercontinental Hotels Group. Um, I love helping people make smarter decisions. I love the weather. So I spent time at the weather company. Um, you know, so when, when, you, when you pick something and you go through the process of, you know, your career journey, be thoughtful about it. You know, make those things really be um, decisions that you've made versus decisions that were put on you um, and, be, and, and do things that you love. Right? You got to get up every morning and work hard, put in the hours. That's all true. But you also need to do it with excitement and energy and passion and drive. And, and I have certainly found that doing things that I'm personally passionate about and here at Equifax, you know, helping people live their financial best, you know, that's a really moving purpose to help people around the world make a smarter decision in their own life every day in terms of their financial, you know, you know, state. And not all of us had great training and education and experience that helps us know how to manage that well. And so that's those things, you know, that purpose, that passion, that's a really important part. Because if you're passionate about something, you're going to be much more successful. Joe, I would love to continue this anytime. This was awesome. Uh, and uh, look forward to our next chat. Fantastic, Bryson. You have a wonderful afternoon. Thank Talk you, sir. Soon. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to help, please take a moment right now to open up the iTunes app and leave a review of the podcast. If you take a screenshot of the review and text it or email it to a friend who needs to listen to the podcast and then CC me, joel at moderncto.io. If you CC me on the email, I'll send you a copy of the Modern CTO book or give you a shout out on the podcast, whichever you prefer.